This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 1st, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Julia Rosen talks with John Cohen about ending HIV in South Africa. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on risk-taking plants. What makes a person a gambler? Are they inherently thrill-seeking or troubled souls pushed to the edge? We don't have an answer for this in people yet, but we do know something about how animals decide it's time to live on the edge. What's the root cause of that, Dave? Well, the root cause is really feeling like you're out of options. So, for example, honeybees are always going to go to a food supply where they're pretty sure there's going to be food there. And they're not going to take a risk on another food supply that maybe there's a lot of food there or maybe there's no food there because why do that if they've got a pretty consistent food supply? But if they're starving and their steady food supply is too small, then they will gamble. They're going to take a risk and go over to that food supply that may have nothing or may have a lot because really that's the best option they have. And that's in bees. And birds have a similar strategy as well, right? Birds do something like that. And now we even do that too. Now, Sarah, if I offered you the choice between giving you $800 and flipping a coin to get either $1,000 or nothing. I'm taking the 800 You're going to take the 800 But what if you were on a desert island and you could get off it with a $900 plane ticket? So then I'm going to take the big gamble. Then you're going to take the gamble because $800 does nothing for you, yeah. right? So the question is, we know we do it. We know we do this. We know some animals do it. But do you Plants know how to gamble. What kind of risks do plants take? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't think about plants taking risk, but plants face some of the same obstacles. And actually, the researchers tested that in this study. They, they basically grew these pea plants so that the half of their roots would go into a pot that had fairly consistent nutrients, and half would go into a pot that sometimes had a lot of nutrients and sometimes had no nutrients. So kind of a similar situation. And as they expected at first the plant was devoting most of its resources. It was putting most of its roots into this pot that had consistent resources. But if the researchers depleted the nutrients of this go-to pot, then the plant started taking risk. And what this meant for the plant was it put a lot more of its roots into this variable pot, meaning that it was taking a risk because it's possible this pot might have no nutrients in it or the pot may have a lot of nutrients in it. This is behavior. This is a plant making a decision. This is how does this reconcile with what we think about as plants? I mean, were researchers surprised by this? Well, you know, we tend to think of plants as pretty passive. They don't have a central nervous system, so they're not really thinking about these decisions. But there have been studies that show that plants have something like 
a memory. They know that when certain bugs land on them, they're supposed to have a certain response depending on what the bug is. We know that plants bend towards sunlight, so they do change in response to their environment. And so this is just adding to that, but it's a more complex behavior than we've seen in the past. Next up, we have a story on shrinking the ozone hole. Ozone-destroying chlorofluorocarbons have been outlawed for a long time. In 1987, the international agreement called the Montreal Protocol phased out the production of these chemicals. The question is, almost 20 years later, has there been an effect? Why has this been so hard to figure out, Dave? Well, because there's a lot of things that impact the ozone layer. It's not just these CFCs, as they're known, but things like weather and volcanic eruptions can also make the ozone hole shrink or grow. So it's been hard to tease out the impact of chemistry versus weather versus volcanoes. Getting to the chemistry here, can we spend a few seconds recapping how all this works? You know, the relationship between chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, and ozone? Well, researchers tend to see the biggest opening in the ozone layer in the Antarctic in the fall. Now, that's the fall here. It's actually the spring over there, but it's still really cold. And what happens is when it's cold, nitric acid and water condense out of the atmosphere and form clouds. And the surfaces of the cloud particles can host chemical reactions that release chlorine that came from these CFCs. Now, in the presence of light, this chlorine actually can destroy ozone, which leads to the ozone hole. So the timing is really important here, and that's why the researchers in this study chose to focus on, I believe, September in particular. Right, and so the big leap here is the improvement in the model and looking at this particular month. They used a very sophisticated 3D modeling here. There had been some studies in the past, but there had been questions about just how sophisticated the analyses were. And in this case, a lot of the experts were really impressed by the sophistication of the modeling that happened here to really figure out what is the exact impact of our reduction in CFCs on the ozone layer. And what the team found is that using a combination of measurements from satellites, ground-based instruments, and weather balloons, that since 2000, the September hole has shrunk by 4 million square kilometers. That's an area bigger than the country of India. One of the reasons experts have confidence in this new study is that, for one thing, it actually resolved a different mystery, which is why there was this record opening in the ozone layer in 2015. And the study showed that it was actually due to a volcanic eruption in southern Chile. And it's actually the chemicals from the volcano can actually destroy the ozone layer just like CFCs can. And so ruling out the volcano and the weather, we're starting to see the ozone hole close. But when will it close altogether? Well, we still have to wait a few decades for that. The researcher says the research says it's probably not till mid century that we're going to see a complete closing of this ozone hole. Lastly, we have a story on genes that keep on ticking. We often think of death as the big off switch. Once your body is dead, microbes take over and start taking us apart molecule by molecule from the inside. But apparently, death is a much slower, complicated process. Some genes even ramp up after death. Dave, why is anyone even asking this question? This is one of these studies that sort of came about, not really by an accident, but just sort of by kind of curiosity. This research team was already looking at what happens to microbes in our bodies when we die. And they figured, well, why don't we take a look at gene activity as well? They were just kind of curious. 
And were they curious about genes in people, or did they start a little bit smaller? Unfortunately, not. They looked at mice and zebrafish. Some studies before had looked at whether a handful of genes might be active after death, and they found some evidence that they are. But these researchers looked at more than a thousand genes in these animals to see what their activity was two days and up to four days after the animals expired. What kind of genes were active after death? Well, some of them weren't too surprising. Genes involved in inflammation, immune system, stress. You kind of would expect this death is the ultimate stress and the ultimate insult to the body. So you would imagine genes might be responding. But other genes were a lot more surprising. For example, some developmental genes turned on. Genes that are only active when we're embryos all of a sudden turned on after death, which is kind of freaky, I guess. Although the researchers say, well, some conditions of a dead body are kind of similar to conditions in an embryo because in an embryo, things are just kind of starting up and in a dead body, everything's kind of ramping down. So it's a lot quieter. Also genes that promote cancer were turning on. And that's really interesting because other studies have shown that people who get transplants from people who have recently died are at a higher risk of cancer. And this could explain that. Genes involved in development, genes involved in cancer. Why do they think that this is happening after the body is dead? Well, they're a little unclear, but could be that, you know, our genes in our body don't just operate in a vacuum. There's genes that turn on, there's genes that suppress other genes, there's genes that activate other genes. So it's possible if most genes are kind of turning off, some of those genes, their job is to keep other genes turned off. So if they turn off, the genes that they're supposed to be suppressing might turn on. And so that could be some of what the researchers saw here. This is a curiosity thing to start out with, but it turns out to kind of have a lot of implications. And we talked a little bit about cancer-causing genes, and that can link to transplants, right, from dead bodies. Right. What other kinds of implications does this study have? Well, there's a bit of a CSI angle here, too, because this could potentially help researchers figure out when somebody died. Right now, when, we're, when we try to figure out how somebody died, we're thinking we're looking at things like, the last cell phone call we made, things that don't necessarily have a lot to do with our body or when we are looking at the body, the measurements we take are not super accurate. And if you could say, well, we know that this particular gene turns on five hours after death, 10 hours after death, two days after death, that could really help crime scene investigators figure out when somebody expired. Okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about unusual sand dunes on Mars also a story that sheds light on the biological system that allows some fish and amphibians to regrow lost limbs. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the U.S. National Academy of Sciences has asked the NIH to immediately halt a controversial proposal that would affect how research is done on people. We're also continuing our coverage of Brexit and the impact it's having on UK science. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Today, nearly anything is possible. And if we can dream it, teams can build it. So how do you bring everyone together to create what's next? Team up with Atlassian, makers of collaboration software that lets teams work and communicate better together. Assign, track, and manage tasks for any project, no matter how complex. 
That's the clarity of JIRA. Create and share content, organize results, and bring team members up to speed. That's the flexibility of Confluence. Instant message or video chat with your team from any device. That's the freedom of HipChat. Test, review, and manage code in real time. That's the power of Bitbucket. Our web development team here at Science uses Jira to manage their projects, current projects, and future projects. That's one of the things they told me when I asked them, what does Jira do for you as a group? They said, not only does it help us manage our workflow in the present, but in the future, we can really use this to help us plan. In addition, they called out the fact that you can customize the interface, not just for the team, but even for individual team members. So visit Atlassian.com and see how Jira, Confluence, HipChat, and Bitbucket give your team everything you need to organize, discuss, and complete shared work. Atlassian, helping teams everywhere team up to create what's next. Atlassian.com. I just learned that some plants know when it's a good time to start taking risks. When I first read the story, it really did kind of blow my mind, and I had to kind of dig around and put it into context for myself because it was a totally new idea. And that's what I love about working here. I get presented with a new idea. I do the research. I get to talk about it with people who care. And I just continue learning. If you're like me and you love learning, you should check out the Great Courses Plus video learning service. You get unlimited access to thousands of the Great Courses online lectures. So many topics taught by top professors. Of course, biology, chemistry, physics, art, history, anything you can think of. Listeners of the Science Podcast get a free one-month trial, and you can listen to any of these courses for a month for free, unlimited access on your computer, also any devices that you might have. I especially want to call out the search for exoplanets, what astronomers know. This course is presented by Joshua and Wynn, and it looks, of course, at worlds outside of our solar system. And it's not just a, yes, we know they exist, and yes, this is how we find them. This is 24 courses focusing on what we know, what new mysteries have arisen since the discovery of these planets. So be sure to check that out when you sign up for your one month free as a science podcast listener. Start your free trial by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. Perhaps nowhere in the world has been hit as hard by the HIV-AIDS epidemic as South Africa. I spoke with staff writer John Cohen, who's been covering the disease for decades, about the country's ambitious efforts to stop its spread. South Africa has 18% of the HIV-infected people in the world. So the country has a population of about 53 million people. 6.4 to 6.8 million South Africans are estimated to be living with HIV right now. On top of that, South Africa has aggressively been rolling out treatment, so they're now treating 3.4 million people, which is more than any other country in the world, and indeed is more than if you combine some continents even. They're consuming about 20% of the antiretroviral drugs used in the world. 
Wow, that's a shocking figure. Can you give some background on how the HIV AIDS epidemic in South Africa got so bad? One of the interesting things that people don't realize about South Africa and its HIV AIDS epidemic is that it started really late. There was virtually very little HIV there through the 1980s when it was exploding in other parts of Africa and in North America and Europe. And at the end of apartheid, around 1991 or so, and the migration patterns start changing, that's when HIV really gets a foothold. And what's been seen in the hardest-hit regions of the country is this pattern of older men, maybe five to eight years older than women, infecting 15 to 19-year-old women. And these women, one research group has found, then as they get to be around 24, 25, they find stable partners who they live with in a monogamous sort of relationship. And they often infect those men. Sometimes those men infect women too. And then those men are the same men who are then having sex with younger women. So it's this vicious cycle. Did the approach of previous governments contribute to the problem in any way? Yeah, President Thabo Mbeki questioned in 2000 whether HIV actually was the cause of AIDS. In 2000, the International AIDS Conference was held in sub-Saharan Africa for the first time, and it was held in Durban in South Africa. And I was there, and Thabo Mbeki spoke. People got up and walked out of his talk. He was sort of a pariah in the HIV-AIDS world for his attitude toward the epidemic. Treatment wasn't available then because it was too expensive. But even cheap interventions, like giving a pregnant woman a single pill when she went into labor and giving her baby a single dose of syrup could cut transmission from a pregnant infected woman to her child. And even that wasn't backed by Mbeki and his Ministry of Health. And his health minister famously advocated using garlic and beetroots and lemons to treat HIV. Her name was Manto Shabalala Mismang. Uh, she since passed away, but the amount of criticism the country received for having that position was one of the loudest criticisms ever directed at any country in the history of the epidemic. Right. And so now they've really changed their attitude and they've pledged to meet this very ambitious UN goal called the 90-90-90 goal by 2020. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, it's been a radical overhaul and South Africa now invests 80% of its own money in its HIV-AIDS response, which for sub-Saharan Africa is a tremendous domestic investment compared to other countries taking a lot of assistance from things like PEPFAR and the Global Fund. Those are the two major funders. So the United Nations Joint Program on HIV-AIDS has come up with a mathematical model that says if you can identify 90% of the HIV-infected people in your country, and if 90% of those people are linked to care and start antiretroviral treatment, and if 90% of the people on treatment fully suppress their virus by taking their pills every day, you can break the back of an epidemic so that it starts to peter out. So that's the 90-90-90 concept. What are some of the challenges South Africa faces in reaching this goal? Well, the goal has a timeline, and it's 2020, which is a few short years away. And Right now, South Africa is treating about half of its infected population. Massive amounts of testing have to occur to identify 90% of the people who are infected. And that testing has to occur repeatedly. You don't just test one time. Maybe it's every six months. Every person needs to be tested. 
and ramping up to getting 90% of the people who are identified as infected on treatment and 90% of them fully suppressed is going to stress enormously an already wobbly healthcare system. Let's say South Africa does achieve this goal, maybe even a few years after 2020. Will it effectively end AIDS? The phrase ending AIDS has different meanings to different people. The definition in UN AIDS terminology is not wiping HIV out so that no one is infected. In fact, if this works, you'll have a lot of HIV-infected people who would have died living longer. That's a good thing. What it means is that you're dropping the rate of new infection to the point where each infected person is not infecting another person. Once you get to the point where you have, let's say, 100 infected people only infecting 90 people or only infecting 50 people, it starts to down spiral and end. And the goal line is 0.1% of the population becoming infected each year. Right now, it's about 0.7% in South Africa. That's about 1,000 people becoming infected every day of the year in South Africa. That's a staggering number. It is, and it's especially staggering if you put it in relationship to places like the United States. You know, the United States has about half of a percent of the total population of 330 million, let's say, who are living with HIV. That amounts to 1.2 million people. So in the United States, we have about 50,000 new infections a year. South Africa has 400,000 or so new infections a year, eight times as much as the United States, and it's six times smaller. There's another idea that you discuss in the story called PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis. Can you explain what that is and how it could help reduce transmission? I think people are very familiar with the idea that you can take a birth control pill to prevent yourself from getting pregnant, or you can take anti-malarial medication before going to a malarial region to prevent yourself from developing malaria. The same holds true for HIV. You can take antiretroviral drugs to protect yourself from becoming infected, and that's what is called pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it's been tested in clinical trials around the world in many different populations, in men who have sex with men, in injecting drug users, in heterosexual couples. And it works in everyone with one major caveat. You have to take the pills every day. And people, as we well know, have trouble taking pills every day. You write that the government isn't advocating the technique yet, but it could be especially helpful for young women, right? Well, that's the hope that it would be very helpful in young women. There are debates about it. But the idea that some people are advocating is that this young woman who is between 15 and 19 and so highly vulnerable to HIV could go on PrEP for that period of time, maybe five years, let's say, and protect herself until she reaches the age where she's looking for a long-term marriage sort of a partner. What is the prevalence of the disease in young women? In the hardest-hit province in KwaZulu-Natal, which is where Durban is, pregnancy clinics have about 30% of the women uh, who are infected, 30 to 40%. I mean, it's astonishingly high. Young girls who are 15 to 19 in that region similarly have 15 to 20% prevalence. And if you look in boys who are 15 to 19, teenagers, There's very low prevalence. It's maybe 1%. Do you think the world is watching South Africa as it tries to grapple with this problem? I think everybody looks to South Africa for answers. A tremendous amount of research goes on in South Africa because so many people are living with the virus and so much transmission occurs. It's a good place to test all sorts of things. 
So it has led the way in a lot of ways to understand things like the benefit and value of male circumcision. People are looking to South Africa right now for major trials that are going on that are giving everyone in a community antiretrovirals who is positive and seeing what actual impact that has on new infection rates, which isn't, you know, a clear picture right now. I mean, there are theories about what should happen, but South Africa is leading the way there. So, yes, the world very much looks at South Africa for answers. And, you know, unfortunately, it's because their burden is so great. You've been covering HIV AIDS for a long time. Does this make you feel optimistic? When I started covering HIV some 30 years ago, and I would go on trips to countries that were developing countries or even middle-income countries, I would see, you know, warehouses of people dying. I mean, rooms filled with hundreds of people dying. I don't see that any longer anywhere. I've seen a remarkable shift. And since the 2000 International AIDS Conference in Durban and the world deciding that poor people should also receive antiretroviral drugs, it startles me to this day how much things have changed. So am I optimistic? Sure, I'm optimistic. I've seen major revolution in my short lifetime in healthcare that rivals anything anywhere. I mean, South Africa has seen an increase in life expectancy of nine years since they introduced antiretrovirals. It's like an unprecedented jump. You don't get nine years of life easily. The big challenges are, of course, rolling out treatment on even a larger scale on a fast timeline. And on top of that, the real end of AIDS is only going to come about with a cure or a vaccine. And those both remain distant dreams. Am I optimistic that the virus can be cleared from someone's body? Am I optimistic that science can come up with a vaccine to prevent people from becoming infected, that you only need to get maybe two or three shots? I'm absolutely optimistic about it, but it's taking a really long time. And that's because this is a really hard virus to stop. It's not for lack of trying. Thank you so much for talking with me, John. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Julia Rosen is a freelance science journalist and former AAAS mass media fellow. This episode of the Science Podcast was brought to you by Atlassian, makers of collaboration software that lets teams work and communicate better together. See how Jira, Confluence, HipChat, and Bitbucket give your team everything you need to organize, discuss, and complete shared work. Atlassian works to help teams large and small ascend to new heights to create what's next. Visit Atlassian.com. Atlassian, helping teams everywhere team up to create what's next. Atlassian.com. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.